0: Questions, quieting all my suggestions. What is the meaning of Christian in this
1: American life? I'm feeling fully foolish, spending my life on a message. I look around and I wonder ever if I heard it right.
0: Welcome to the A Millennial Podcast, where we have theological conversations for today's world. I'm your host, Amy Montravati, coming to you live from Dayton, Ohio the surfing capital of Ohio. Now, those of you who are more keenly aware of geographic realities may be thinking, where does one surf in Dayton, Ohio? It's nowhere near the ocean? It's not even close to Lake Erie. Right you are! But we Daytonians are nothing if not persistent in the face of geographic obstacles. As it turns out, you can surf on rivers too, and in the past few years, the local parks organization has invested in the creation of two different water features on the Great Miami River downtown with separate entry points depending on one skill level. The BBC reported last fall on an explosion in interest due to the current COVID pandemic, which has caused many who would have traveled out of state to remain at home. There is a thriving business in surfing lessons, and one store nearby reports that people are buying paddleboards faster than they can stock them. My husband and I were able to witness a group of people kayaking on one of the water features recently, and I can confirm that they seemed at least moderately pleased. Huntington Beach had better watch its back. Today I'm going to be speaking with Jen Oshman, author of the book Enough About Me, Finding Lasting Joy in the Age of Self. When I first read the title, I thought it sounded like a great book for other people to read. I kid, I kid. I'm sure the world has certainly had enough of me. Selfishness, self-obsession, and pride lay at the root of every sin in one way or another. They are also very depressing ways to live your life. However, Western society, by which I mean primarily Europe, North America, and other parts of the world primarily influenced by them, has put the individual on the highest pedestal, as opposed to Eastern or other historic societies that tend to put the family, clan, or society in that position. While this has led to some very important and beneficial protections for individual freedoms, it has also led to us becoming increasingly self-obsessed, dependent on our own personal efforts for meaning and satisfaction in life. Scripture, on the other hand, respects the individual, but puts God in first place. In his epistle to the Galatians, the Apostle Paul made one of the strongest cases in Scripture for the insufficiency of self-effort. He wrote that attempting to perfectly keep the commandments of God, collectively known as the law, by our own power, will only result in failure. Instead, we must submit ourselves to Christ and find our identity in Him as our Savior. Here is what he says in one key passage. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. Contrary to our culture, which is constantly preaching a message of self-empowerment, the message of the Bible is that we can't do it, but Christ has already done it on our behalf. That is incredibly humbling, but also gloriously freeing. Listen on to hear my discussion with Jen about how we can start focusing less on ourselves and more on the God who has saved us. And I am here with Christian author Jen Oshman. Jen and her husband served for many years as missionaries, first in Okinawa, Japan, and later as church planners in the Czech Republic, also known as Czechia, with Pioneers International. During the, that time, she was active in teaching, discipling, and counseling women. In 2015, their family, that includes four daughters, returned to live in Colorado and planted a church, Redemption Parker, with the x 29 Network. She and her husband both remain in support roles with Pioneers International. Jen is also an avid writer, which is what brings her on the program today. Her articles have been shared by the Gospel Coalition, Desiring God, Risen Motherhood, and Tim Shelley's, among others. The past two years have been big ones for Jen as she launched a podcast called All Things in which she applies Christian truth to pressing issues of the day, and she also published her first book, Enough About Me, which we will be talking about today. You can find her on social media on Twitter and Instagram at Jen Oshman and on Facebook Jennifer. Owen Oshman. And her website is www.JenOshman.com. Well welcome to the program, Jen. I'm so glad to have you on. Oh thank you so much.
1: It's my joy. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah. Well, I mentioned that you spent time serving with your family as missionaries and You've also written about how you taught your daughters to eat whatever food was put in front of them (laughs) because you were served a wide variety of meals in your time abroad and didn't want to offend anyone. All of this led me to wonder, what is the oddest food you've ever had to eat during your time overseas?
1: Oh my gosh, that is a funny question. Well, you're right. I mean, having these kids in Asia and then taking them to Europe, we have eaten all kinds of things. I think the hardest thing that was for me to stomach and get down was um, once in Japan I was served squid ink pasta and it's um, the squid ink sauce is very black Mm -hmm. and it dyes your teeth and your tongue and your lips black. And it kind of like bleeds from your lips onto your skin as well and kind of spreads. And so Mm -hmm. it's just visually so hard to eat something like that and then sort of feel it and see it. You know, out of the mm. periphery of your eye on your face. Um, I got it down, but it was it was not easy.
0: Yeah, I've never had that, but I I've heard a little bit about it, so maybe someday I'll have to try it. I was also wondering if you had ever eaten uni while you were in Japan. What is which uni? is the I don't know off the top of my head? So it's and you know, Okinawa is a little different, maybe than the mainland yes. of Japan as well. True, but uni is. The one thing that my husband has tried that he said he would never have again, it is (laughs) a sushi, which is sea urchin. Ah, So he had it. Okay, I've seen it. He had it many years ago, and then about... A year or two ago, we were out to a Japanese restaurant with some friends, and he was persuaded to try it again, thinking maybe oh. the first time it had just gone bad or something.
1: <laughs> no, he still didn't like it. So, wow. Uh, well, I respect him for trying twice because yeah. I've never tried it even once. I definitely have seen it, but never ordered it. Yeah, yeah, and I
0: I tried it, but I I don't remember anything about how it tasted. So
1: well, like,
0: maybe uh, that's good. Yeah. Anyway, well, I just thought that would be an interesting place to to start off with the wonderful world of strange foods. <laughs> so diving in then to a discussion about your book, my own spiritual journey has involved a long process of realizing just how self-focused I am in so many areas of my life. This problem is certainly not unique to me as selfishness and pride lie at the heart, really, of all sin. But you point out in your book that there are things in the West and Western culture that tend to lead us to become more self-focused. Speaking to those of your own generation, you write that, quote, you and I were born into an age that triumphed relativism and individualism. The culture of our childhoods was decidedly anti-authoritarian. Rather than discovering the objective truth, we were taught to define our own subjective truth. Unlike millennia of generations before us, we set out not to uncover the meaning of life, but to give our lives their own meaning. We triumph freedom as our highest good. Individual freedom trumps all former societal norms and values. It is ultimate, unquote. Mm-hmm. So, as I mentioned, you've spent time as a missionary in Japan and the Czech Republic, two cultures that, in their own ways, are very different from the United States. So do you think these tendencies toward relativism, individualism, and what I'll call libertarianism, though not in the sense of the political party, are unique to certain places in the West? Or do they have an increasing pull throughout the whole world?
1: Yeah, you know, it's funny having lived in Asia and Europe, and obviously Asia is wide and diverse, and so is Europe. But what was so fascinating is there are some striking similarities between the Japanese culture and the Czech culture, which we did not anticipate. But some just really interesting things, like for one, neither people group ever wears shoes in their home. They all take, no matter what, if you're in Czech or Japan, you take off your shoes when you enter um, Mm. any house or even school buildings and office buildings. There's certain indoor shoes that you switch to when you get to that building. Also, both cultures speak really softly. It's rude to speak really loudly. And they speak with their mouths moving sort of minimally, whereas in the Czech Republic, they said Americans look like they're speaking with an egg in their mouth, a whole egg, you know, without cracking it. So anyway, just that's like a side note that even though they are a world apart and have totally different histories, there's some interesting similarities between the two. But another to get to your question, another thing that's similar about both Czech and Japanese cultures is that they are they are really um, the foundation is the family and the foundation is sort Mm -hmm. of the ancestry and the history of the family. So both people groups are largely homogenous. So strikingly different from the United States where we are sort of a melting pot. But in Japan, you have almost exclusively Japanese citizens with Japanese ancestry. And same with the Czech Republic. Now, in Czech, there's a little bit more intermarriage with the surrounding nations, but the Czech people are very Czech historically. And this is a source of pride for both countries. They're very proud of their heritage and proud of their traditions as a culture and as a people. So in that way, they are so different than the United States. We don't have... Mm -hmm much of a shared identity in terms of our history and traditions. And we don't introduce ourselves as members of a family, or as people of a certain city, or of a certain village, or of a certain tradition, whereas in Japan and Czech, you do. It's very much part of your introduction of of who you are, even today, even as a young person. You are a family, you're lying, you know, who you come from. So I think While pride is certainly pervasive, we see it in the garden, and then we see it in every human heart since the fall. Pride and sin is pervasive. That is our condition as fallen humans. What's different here in the United States is that we don't have a shared identity or a shared ancestry. And especially in more recent decades, we've tried really hard to invent ourselves and create our own identity. And identity politics is increasingly coming to the surface as an issue of not just contention, but even violence and huge disunity in our nation. And I think that's because people have worked so hard to create their own identity, that to threaten it or to question it is very personal and very hurtful, and just sort of wounds the soul of the person who said, this is who I've decided I am. This is my identity. They aren't couched in the safety and the security of a family name or a family tradition or a family line or the the history and heritage of a people group. They've had to invent themselves. And the invented self is very fragile, which is largely what Enough About Me is about. So I do think the U.S. is unique in that way. And certainly maybe not the one and only, you know, I can't say that we're the only society in such a position across the globe, but it's the society I know best. And I know that we are fragile because of that.
0: Yeah, and if you think about U.S. history, it makes sense that we'd be that way because with the exception, of course, of uh, Native Americans, everyone else here is an immigrant at some point or another. And I, in previous years, worked on a study where I was interviewing people all over the country for um, some social science research that was being done. And one of the questions I had to ask them was, what is your ethnic identity or where, where is your family from and it was very interesting the high percentage of people who just said American and mm. really we were looking for American is not an ethnicity you know we were mm. looking for my ancestors are from Germany or even Africa or a continent anything and they just had no idea where the no sense of any history beyond just their generation or the one or two before that and as someone who myself has spent a lot of time looking into my family genealogy as I've found out more and more about where my family is from and in an odd way I have started to see myself less and less as American or just you know a individual here creating my own identity and much more connected to a history and mm. a people that go back for hundreds of years but our status as an immigrant nation really has created, in many cases, a rootless people. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when you talk about not being identified by your family identity, I guess I could see some good consequences of that and that you don't have as much of an aristocracy as you did in old Europe where, you know, people in the upper classes look down on people in the lower classes, but it also gets rid of all the positive parts of family identity. So that's interesting that you have that observation. I appreciate it because, you know, you have spent time living in other cultures. So you have that, that you can bring the different ways that people tend to think about questions of identity.
1: Um, I'm with you. I think it's fascinating. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. You refer to God in your book as a story writer and storyteller from whom we have our existence. He is the one who can, quote, tell us about ourselves. He has the answers, unquote. I've thought about God in a very similar way as the maker of a car and the commands of God are akin to an instruction manual for that car. How do Christians who outwardly acknowledge God as their creator tend to forget that fact in certain ways? And... How does it manifest in our behavior?
1: Hmm. Well, I know that I personally forget it a hundred times a day in a hundred different ways. Again, going back to question number one, pride is really at the root of this. The enemy asks Adam and Eve, did God really say that? And that's sort of been the question of the sinful human heart ever since. Did God really say that? Did he really ask these things of me or did he really command these things or can I be my own God? Can I direct my own way? And certainly I fall prey to that, you know, as I said, truly a 100 times a day as I seek to obey myself and seek to please myself above the God who made me and created me and saved me as well. So I think that especially in this moment, um, and I know there's nothing new under the sun, but in this moment of a very consumer oriented American or Western culture, we really do seek to please ourselves. We have so much security, so much comfort so many opportunities to do exactly what we want to do and not endure certain peril or certain hardships. We want to cultivate our best lives now. It's so easy to forget that Jesus asked us to lay down our lives, that he asked us to be the least and he asked us to be the last. You know, God really did say, if you want to follow me, you must bear your cross. You must lay down your life to find it. Um, And I think of somebody like Mary, you know, when the angel appeared to her, she said, may it be to me as, as you have said, and just so willingly gave her body, gave her life, gave her, you know, her social status, her soon to be married status, all these ways that she viewed herself and others viewed her and, and laid that down and said, yes, may it be to me as you have said. And I think that's something that I personally, and I think many of us Christians in the West struggle with, we forget that the Lord has said yes go low, lay yourself low, and we seek to serve and please and protect ourselves rather than following Christ.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think we could probably go on for a very long time about all the ways Mm -hmm. that we do that. And if you're only... Getting this a hundred times a day, you're probably doing better than me because I'm probably at least at two hundred. So, right? Oh um, god! Because it, isn't that the source of all sin? Just our yes. forgetfulness of yes. God's position in relation to us. So, yeah, I appreciate you reflecting on that. As a young person, I had the impression that giving oneself more and more to God meant having your identity erased in a certain way or your personality changed. I've come to see as I've gotten older how untrue that is, and you make a good point to this effect when you say, quote, To be our truest selves, to walk in our most genuine identity, does not come from within. Rather, it comes from being fueled by our relationship with God and living for his glory. As creatures designed by him and for him, this is our best and truest self, unquote. Could you expand on that a bit more? How does finding our identity in Christ make us the truest versions of ourselves?
1: Sure. Well, like we just said in the last question, you know, God is our story writer. God is the storyteller. He writes us into his grand story. So he is our creator. And if you even just look back to the creation account, you can see right off the bat what a good and kind and loving God he is. The way that creation is, the beauty that we can behold in creation the fact that he created us in his image for community and worship, you know, by him, for him, through him, to him, as Colossians says. So he he knows us best because he made us. He's the one who knit us together. And we are by no means then to think that we are sort of cookie cutter or that erases anything. I mean, Amy, if we just look at the fish under the sea or the stars in the sky or the intricacy of the human body, what's inside each of us, think of the billions of people on the planet. And how each one has different eyes and different hair and different personalities, you know, physically, inwardly and outwardly, their spirits, their personalities. There is so much diversity in creation. Our God is immeasurably creative. And so if we remember and return to the truth that he made us and we seek his face and seek his will and seek what is his grand story all about and fit ourselves into that with his help. And with his power for his pleasure and for his glory, that's when we come to know ourselves the best. And it's when we rail against that where we really we really miss out on the joy and peace and satisfaction that he's intended for us to have in this life.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. And when we talk about having to lose ourselves in order to find ourselves or laying down our lives in order to f- follow Christ, I think it's best to think about that as what we're really losing is our sinful tendencies mm-hmm. and desires being lost over time. Or The good thing that God always intended us to be, like you said, is mm. coming out. And you make a good point that he he wants a diversity of people. He doesn't want us to all be cookie cutters. So, sure. yeah, sure. I, I appreciate you talking about that. One good point you make in your book is that, quote, any deviation from biblical Christianity can be detected when we are told to turn our practices and habits inward on ourselves rather than outward on our marvelous Savior, unquote. Two manifestations of this that you mentioned are the way we think about, quote, unquote, quiet time and the content of our worship songs. Could you discuss that a bit? And are there any more examples that you've seen?
1: Yeah, sure. So, again i've said this and i hate to be Debbie downer about it but we live in such a consumeristic oriented culture we have this sort of consumer christianity we if we haven't rejected church altogether or rejected jesus christ altogether and we've we want to follow him or we want to join a christian church in many ways it's in with a consumeristic mentality you know what's which one fits me the best? Which one do I enjoy the best? Which one has the best coffee or the best kids programs? Or where can I go to consume? You know, rather than where can I go to maybe contribute or to covenant with the other people in the community and pursue the goodness that is the family of God, we tend to consume. And once you see it, it's hard not to see it everywhere. And I know it's not everywhere. But you think of just the large institutions, and I have nothing against large churches, I'm not saying that by any means, so please don't mishear me, but just these engines that sort of have to keep themselves going. Mm-hmm. And the goal then is maybe numbers and growth so that the engine can keep going. And it is everywhere, you know, it's in our home decor, it's in our Instagram, and it's in our own souls, this desire to serve ourselves. And so it can be hard to see or it can be hard to pick up on that idol when you worship it. But I do think it comes out in things like your personal quiet time. Certainly, our relationship with our maker and savior is meant to be personal. Certainly, our salvation is personal. You know, we must surrender our unique and personal selves over to our Lord. However, the Christian life was never meant to be private. Personal in some ways, yes, but not private. We were created for community, as we see in the Garden of Eden. We were created to be a part, to be One more link in a eternal genealogy. There's so many genealogies in just the book of Genesis alone, but throughout all of scripture. And we're part of that genealogy and we are designed to flourish corporately, not flourish individually. And so I think in the American West, especially, we have really forgotten that crucial and I think very central component of our faith is that we were created for community, not for an individual pursuit. Um, and that has been to our detriment, our great detriment It has been, we've just been really hurt ourselves in the process. And so you see it like I, in your, your question, and as I say in the book, you see it in worship songs too, that make priority your personal feelings rather than the exaltation and goodness of God, or maybe a corporate history or a corporate recitation of God's goodness to the whole community. We do tend to, just be very personal or very private rather than corporate. And I don't believe that's the Lord's design and I don't think it's for our good.
0: Yeah, you make me think about some of the observations that have occurred over the past year with the coronavirus pandemic and so many people going mm-hmm. to streaming, uh, virtual streaming of church services rather than going in person at On many occasions because they're legally barred from going in person for a time or they have very real concerns for their health. And we've been watching streaming of church more than Mm -hmm. a lot more than going in person. But I do feel that we lose something, you know, when we're just watching on the TV. But there's been a lot of concern that some of the people who are watching at home They'll never come back when the church is reopened. They'll just check out of church entirely. But what I'm seeing from people who seem to be really deep in their faith is that they are really feeling a loss over the course of this year. They aren't feeling like, oh, it's just as good to watch on TV because they understand what it is to be in that vibrant community that God has intended where we are walking together in the Christian life and not just on our own in front Mm. because even before the pandemic happened, you would hear about these virtual reality churches or whatever. And we all kind of, a lot of us made fun of it and said, that's not really (laughs) church. It's not the same thing, but now it's almost like God has given us all this test of all of a sudden having Mm. being starved of some of that community. And we're finding lots of different ways to try to continue the community despite the restrictions. But It's given me such an appreciation for, you know, the few occasions we have God in person. It's just so special. And Mm -hmm. when we finally get back to more of a normal where we're going every week, I mean, our son was born the month before everything shut down. So he really Mm -hmm. doesn't, has no concept. I mean, he's too young to have much of a concept of anything, but Mm. he's too, he doesn't have a concept that every week we go to church, he thinks every week we go downstairs and sit and watch church which is good right. and we do lots of things to every day we're you know reading scripture and praying with him doing different things but it it will be different for him when yeah. he's there with his church family so i just think this past year has given such a perfect example of what you're talking about of that we can't just have our own little church with our Bible and our mug of coffee on a Sunday morning sitting on our porch you know it's not the same it's not what God intended for us so and when we are together that drives us away from that purely consumer mindset we're forced to be part of a body and that is what God intended for us so I think that's a just a great point that you have our culture uh Loves the message, believe in yourself, and Mm -hmm. various (laughs) variations on that. As a mother of a small child, I see it in many children's books. It's in so many American films. We seem to accept this platitude with little consideration, and yet you point out that this message is in large part antithetical to Christian teaching. You write, quote, To believe in oneself is to refuse grace. It is to say to the God who made you, I'm doing fine on my own. Thank you very much. It is to refuse the Lord's unconditional love, forgiveness, and empowerment. But when we confess that we are not enough, we invite all of that in. Confession leads to joy, unquote. Mm. How do we draw a line as Christians between appropriate self-confidence and harmful pride that places trust in something other than God?
1: Yeah, man, that is a good question, because I feel like those two things can look really identical. (laughs) You know, it's the sort of outward appearance of two different hearts can be very similar. And I think sometimes we can even not know ourselves from which foundation we are operating. And it's something we constantly need to be asking ourselves about. But um, really, the premise and message of the whole book is that that first sentence that you read, to believe in oneself is to refuse grace and that's my hope with the book enough about me is that those who read it would just experience total relief it's so exhausting to believe in yourself to feel like i have got to invent myself i have got to pull myself up by my bootstraps and i've got to make this happen it's all on me and that's how we were raised at least in a, a secular setting and i think a lot of times even in the church setting what, maybe by teachers and parents who did not realize that that's actually what they were communicating so This exhaustion, this burnt out experience that a lot of us have, is the result of I can do it myself. And so, my hope is that the reality check that no, actually, you can't do it yourself is a message of sweet relief. And um, you make a good point with your question. There is an appropriate self confidence. Absolutely. We must remember there is now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus to be beloved and chosen and holy and set apart by the God of the universe is such a great gift. And when we operate from the foundation of that truth, that I am his, he will never leave me or forsake me. I can never be snatched out of the father's hands. I belong to him. Then we operate from a place of wanting to please him and steward the life that he's given us. It's kind of a, it's a stewardship mindset rather than a self-help mindset. It's an acknowledgement that My life and breath and all that I have comes from the hand of a sovereign and good God. He ordained my life and these circumstances and my gifts and abilities, as well as my shortcomings and the hard things in my community or my setting for his good purposes. And so I can wake up with confidence every day that God is God and he's going to accomplish what he wills in my life. And when we move from that perspective, rather than an I can do it myself perspective, we have nothing but hope. You know, we have nothing but encouragement and power because we know that God is in charge and his will cannot be thwarted. And he's pleased with us because when he looks at us, he sees his son and his son's righteousness. And so it's an incredibly freeing shift in the way that we think. And so really just to get back to your question, how do we draw that line? I think it depends on who we trust. Do we trust ourselves Mm -hmm. or do we trust the Lord?
0: Yeah, one of the pastors at my church is... uh, very fond of putting the sort of secular gospel in terms of the phrase do more, try harder. Mm-hmm. And which is really the opposite of the gospel. And yet yes, I think in our culture with this sort of you know self-reliance, rugged individualism, and some ways it comes comes a little bit from capitalism, the mindset that if you just work hard enough you could, you know, succeed in the economy or you can succeed in life. And Regardless of where we are in the political spectrum, I think we all, to a certain extent, buy into the idea of meritocracy. And if Mm. we just we have it within ourselves, we just need to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And, you know, on the one hand, I can say I don't have nearly enough faith to believe in myself. I know myself too well (laughs) to believe in myself. And yet, again, there are probably a hundred times a day where without even thinking about it, I've fallen into that do more, try harder mindset. Mm-hmm. I have a almost one-year-old son, and during the day I'm saying, okay, did I do this with him? Did I do that? Did mm-hmm. I get this done? Did I get that done? Did I have time to work on the podcast today? You know, and it's I judge my day based on how much productivity did I get? Mm-hmm. How many things did I check off on the list? And in a certain way, I have to have a list to keep myself sane and not forget everything because my memory went completely kaput after I had a baby. (laughs) But on the other hand, that is definitely falling back into that idea that believing in yourself and if I just keep trying harder, if I just get up 30 minutes earlier and do one thing more in the day, you know, then it'll all be okay. And so I think I really appreciate that you talked a lot about that in your book. And especially because your book uh, is targeted a lot to people like me who are Mm -hmm. women with children or, you know, just trying to juggle all the things here in American life. And I think that's something we could fall into a lot. So I really appreciate you addressing that.
1: Definitely Um, preaching to myself, Amy. I have to say that to myself all the time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So another thing our culture is, absolutely obsessed with is the notion of choice and the belief that more choices equals greater freedom. To a certain extent, that's true, but you also point out that we can end up becoming a slave to our own choices, unable to decide because we think everything hinges on our own autonomy. How should Christians think about our choices differently than the population in general? This is something you address in your book, but maybe you could just give us a little preview or a little snippet now.
1: Sure. Yeah, I, I think in the book I share how after living overseas for about 15 years and coming back and trying to do the grocery shopping, it was just absolutely overwhelming. We've lived back in the US for five years now and I still find it almost debilitating to go into the grocery store because there are so many choices. It's like analysis paralysis. There's too many things to think about. And and we do get into that mindset as Americans. Well as long as I curate the best education the best friends group, the best, you know, wardrobe, the best weekend plans and retirement plans and vacation plans and do just the right thing. And of course, curate it for online consumption, you know, in social media, I can create my best life now. And that's just not true. We can operate that way for so long, but inevitably something will run up against something and we'll be reminded That in fact, we are finite and frail and fallen human beings, and we need the Lord and we need his help. And so, again, not to be a broken record, but I hope that that is a freeing message, that you are not the sum of your choices, your good ones or your bad ones. There's nothing that you or I can do to make God love us more or make God love us less. And he is indeed sovereign. And he does look upon you and me with love and grace if we are in Christ Jesus. And he wants to help us and to fill us and to move us through our days according to his will. And so my desire is that Christians would look at choices again with that sort of stewardship mentality, like, Lord, what would you have me do? We tend to look at life with, well, what can I get away with? And I think a better question is, well, how should I honor the Lord? What has he appointed for this moment? What, it, what would be by him and for him and through him and to him in this moment? And then there's freedom in that because I realize I'm not the sum of my choices. If I really screw this up, it's going to be okay because Jesus has redeemed me and he's not letting go of me and he will help me whatever comes. So let's not be overwhelmed by our choices and feel like it is all on me because that's just not true. Let's walk in freedom that our God is good and he is ready to help us.
0: You know, so much of what you're saying reminds me of the first question and answer in the Heidelberg Catechism, mm-hmm. which asks, you know, what is your only comfort in life and in death that I am not my own, yes. but belong body and soul to my mm. faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. And I so often observe that if you're not in Christ, or if you think you are and you're not, or if you're, you know, completely secular, that's not comforting at all to think that yeah. you belong to Christ and you're not completely in control of everything, but the Bible is pretty clear that all of us are being influenced and Mm. controlled by something. Paul says we're either slaves to sin or we're slaves to righteousness, and the Bible says that true freedom is to serve Jesus Christ rather than serving yourself or the devil or whatever you're worshiping. So, I, yeah, I think that sometimes we've raised freedom up to be the most valuable virtue in our society, but freedom's only as valuable as what you use it for. And what kind of freedom are we talking about? And we just like the word freedom so much (laughs) that we don't think too much about what does that actually mean? And the fact that none of us are really free and sometimes all of a sudden Even though we have the best technology and medicine and everything that we've ever had in human history, there can be a virus that hits us that completely throws everything out of whack and suddenly none of us are in control anymore. And so, again, our current situation is a reminder to us Mm -hmm. of what you're talking about. And so I really appreciate that. Circling back to some things we talked about, you have a quote in your book, quote, we tend to believe that our worth is equal to what we can produce and consume. We look to ourselves, to the products we choose and buy, to the methods we choose to live by, to the things we can produce, and to the lifestyle choices we make for our value and identity, unquote. This tendency of our society to value people in terms of production and define them in terms of consumption has led to all sorts of negative consequences, not the least of which is the dehumanization of anyone who's not to quote unquote contribute anything to society and unfortunately the same tendency is also prevalent within the church if in slightly different ways how does our mindset of production and consumption specifically affect the way we think about success in christian ministry or in the christian life
1: yeah you know this issue is like insidious and it's it's absolutely evil I believe it's what drives the abortion industry. It's what drives physician assisted suicide. Um, It's what's driving so much depression and despair. It's just this idea that if you can't contribute to society, then your life doesn't have meaning. If you can't do something useful, you know, if you are less than able somehow, then your life is less than worthy. And it's, it's so grievous and it's so contrary to our God who says that when we are weak, he is strong. So really it's, as I said, it's just pervasive. And we do see it in the Christian life and in the Christian church as well. And it grieves me. And I see it in my own heart. I'm not pointing fingers as much as I am just acknowledging this in myself is that we want to see what can I get done today? What can I produce? How many followers can I have? How many listeners can I have? How many books can I sell? How many people will come to my church? If I'm a missionary, how many people will get converted? How many times am I sharing the gospel? You know, like we tend to be visually oriented, you know, what can I see? And then what can I count? You know, we want to measure mm. the things that we see. And so I do think it's an it's a huge issue inside our churches and inside our own hearts. What we determine to be good and faithful ministry, we measure with our finite, limited human minds. But that is not the mind of God. You know, the Lord does not deem success with big numbers. I don't mean to paint such a broad brushstroke as to say there aren't some useful things about that. There are. It's with God's help and the Holy Spirit's leading. It's okay and good and helpful sometimes to look at those measurements. I don't mean to say they're all awful. But if you just look at the life of Christ and who he drew near to, it was the sick and the outcast and the poor and the lowly. This is who Jesus drew near to. This is who he had compassion on. This is who he came to save. And so If we wouldn't call that fruitful ministry, you know, how dare we, you know, deem what we're doing now as fruitful. So I think there's this principle that I have that has been really helpful, whether on the mission field or whether here in the U.S. as a church planter or as now an author. And it's that God calls me to be faithful. You know, he's asked a certain task of me. He's placed something in my life and asked me to do it. So my job is to be faithful. But his role is to produce the fruit. I cannot produce fruit. It's God who grows the fruit is what Paul says. And so that fruit is not really my business. You know, the numbers aren't really my business. My business is being faithful and obedient to my Lord and honoring him. But what he wants to do with my faithfulness is up to him. And it might be to have a teeny church or to sell no books or to be rejected and persecuted. That might be his will. And that's the fruit that he's growing. And that's a blessing and we ought to praise him and thank him for that as well. So my encouragement to people, especially if they feel paralyzed, like, what should I do? What if nobody listens or what should I do if nobody reads? Well, that's okay. That's not our business. That's God's Mm -hmm. business. Go ahead and obey him and let him determine what the outcome will be. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: And that's such a temptation
0: as a writer or like, you know, Mm -hmm. a pastor or missionary to, think that you have to protect your platform, I guess you could say, that because no one will listen to me if I don't have my, you know, this institution backing me or if I don't have enough followers on Twitter or enough. And we think, well, it's good for people to hear what I have to say, so I have to keep promoting mm-hmm. and perpetuating that in some way. And sometimes we need to stop and ask, are we just telling people what they want to hear? Mm-hmm. Or are we telling them what God really needs them to hear? Because If you look in the Bible at the prophets, a lot of times when they told people what God wanted them to hear, they didn't get a lot of fans. And (laughs) on the one hand, you can look at Jesus and say he actually did have a lot of people who came to listen Mm. to him. He was, you know, somewhat of a celebrity in his own day. Mm. But when push came to shove, a lot of those people rejected him. And he was willing to give up the things of this world to save us. So, and as a result of that, God brought about this blessing where, you know, he said, the father is going to bring everyone to me that the father has for me. And you definitely see that it's God who's bringing the fruit. And sometimes we're not going to see it in our lifetime. You think about all those Old Testament patriarchs who had to see the promises from afar and Mm -hmm. they were faithful for many years and never saw the Christ come, but God does keep his promises. So, it's useful to look at numbers and pay attention to them because sometimes that can point to something that is Mm -hmm. problematic. But I do think it's a problem that most of the time, if you ask people, name some really successful pastors, they're probably going to all name people with either huge churches or a lot of published books and sold books or who appear at a lot of conferences. And some of those pastors certainly have been very successful for the Lord and being very faithful to him. But how many people would say, well, my pastor of this church with 50 people is the person who's very successful? No, yes. we don't think about it that way. So I definitely think you make a good point there. And certainly, as you say, the most nefarious way we see it is in just completely devaluing mm-hmm. certain human lives. So that's the worst thing that comes about as a result of it. But in a lot of small ways, I think we buy into some of that reasoning yeah. as well. Yeah. You have a quote in your book, originally from Andrew Delbanco, that pride is the enemy of hope. I thought that was an interesting way of putting things. Can you unpack
1: it a little bit? Yeah, I love that quote, too, which is definitely why I borrowed it (laughs) to stick in my book. (laughs) Pride is the enemy of hope. So when we are we are prideful, when we think I can do it myself, when we have total self confidence and we count on ourselves at the end of the day. I think when we're totally honest, we know we are limited. You know, that's sort of what burnout is, is we know we actually don't have what it takes to get the job done. We know ourselves better than anybody else. We know our secrets and our sin and our shortcomings better than anybody else. And we know how tired we get and we know how incapable we are. So when we keep shoving that truth away and saying, no, 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 I can do it. I can do it. I can do it. Discouragement rises. But when we just look in the mirror and go, you know what? It's totally true. I can't do it. That's when hope comes rushing in. It's just that surrender. It's that on the floor moment that I talk about in the book. It's hitting rock bottom. You know, We all have to hit rock bottom once, especially to be saved. But then over and over a hundred times a day when we say, I've fallen again, Lord. I blew it again. These people in my life, this project, whatever you've given me, I've blown it again. I can't do it myself. Please help me. There's nothing more hopeful in this life than calling on the Lord and saying, please help me. And my hope is that this book will help people do that is just cry out. I can't do it. Please help me. That's so hopeful. Mm -hmm.
0: It reminds me of the story of Martin Luther and how he for many years tried so hard to Mm. become righteous through self-effort and constantly confessing his sins to the point that the person he's confessing to is like, you really need to be a little easier on yourself. This is getting insane. you know. And, and they were mugs. So if they thought yeah. that he was being too hard on himself, you, he was really, really hard. And he said, and I, I can't give you an exact quote, but it's ready. He said he got to the point where he was just in complete despair. And that was when God was able to reach him when his heart was open to the gospel and it wasn't through self-effort. And that was when when he surrendered that pride of trying to earn his salvation, essentially. He was able to actually uh, experience the freedom of salvation and the hope that that brought him. And he was in very deep depression and was relieved from a lot of that as a result. So I think that's just a good way to sum up your book. and. I would very much encourage people to read your book enough about me and to listen to your podcast. But just here at the end, I'm wondering, you, you're you working on a new book, and I think you were trying to just complete the manuscript uh, before we recorded. So could you give just a little sneak peek of what that will be about?
1: Yeah, sure. I just turned in the manuscript on Monday. Also, um, this book will be published by Crossway again, and it will come out in Well, I'm giving you I'm
0: giving you a round of applause for completing your (laughs) manuscript. That's great. I commiserate with you on the hard work and, you know, congratulate you on a job well done.
1: (laughs) Thank you so much. I know. And, you know, like writing and podcasting, these things are done from the isolation of our own homes. And it's fun sometimes to see like minded friends who are co-laboring with you from afar and cheer each other on. So thank you. That's really sweet of you. (laughs) But yeah, actually, this second book sort of came out of the first book. So in the first book, I critique the age of self and just really wanting to draw the reader to remember who God is and remember, you know, who they belong to. Um, In the second book, I do that as well. But I actually, um, so if you ever heard my podcast, you know that I do love to do sort of cultural critique. I love the news. I love the headlines. I want to know what's going on. And then I want to view them through the lens of scripture. And so with the second book, I do that. It's called So Much More. And I actually look at what it's sort of been like to be a girl and a woman since the sexual revolution. And I try to uncover or expose five idols of our age and show them, show the reader the rottenness that is underneath the sort of glittery life promising facade and just showing how these idols have overpromised but underdelivered, And we were made for so much more and all that we have in Christ. You know, what he has for us, all that he has is ours how he's created us and made us and the victory that he has for us. So my hope is to just expose these idols and then exalt Jesus and woo the reader to him rather than to the false gods of our age.
0: Well, thanks for that little preview. And that's sure. something to look forward to maybe coming out later this year, perhaps sometime early
1: 2022. Yeah. It'll be a year uh, early from now.
0: Okay. Yeah. Hey, we might even be like, somewhat past the pandemic by then. Oh, you never Lord know. Willing. So, Lord not it be wonderful? Then you could have I don't know, people might have actual book tours or book release parties right? again or I don't right? know, it could be great. So, Could be great. Um, well, thank you, Jen, so much for talking to me today and I really enjoyed our conversation.
1: Thank you so much, Amy, too. It's been really sweet for me as well. I need to know there is justice that will rolling in you're building a city where we arrive as immigrants, and you call us citizens,
0: and you welcome us as children home. It was an honor to interview Jen about her book, Enough About Me Finding Lasting Joy in the Age of Self, which is published by Crossway. As always, the music today is a song Citizens by John Guerra, who graciously allows it to be used for this podcast. Wherever you are, I hope that you experience a wonderful week in which you grow in the knowledge of our Lord and live for his glory. As Paul concluded in his letter to the Galatians, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers and sisters. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Have a great week
1: is there a way to love always living in enemy hallways don't know my foes from my friends and i don't know my friends anymore power has several prizes handcuffs can come in all sizes love has a million disguises but winning is simply not one